0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. And now, finally, I've found some time to get to the point in this Canaan series. While I was announcing the show's hiatus, I wanted to make sure and find some time to plop in a few extra episodes covering some literature I never got a chance to cover in the main narrative. And probably the biggest gap in my story has come has been the cache of legends found at the northern Canaanite city of Ugarit. Now these have been heavily analyzed by modern scholars, since these are in many ways our best and often our only windows into the myths and legends of gods, who are otherwise only known through the name dropping in the Hebrew Bible, and in some mentions in much later discussions of Phoenicians of classical antiquity. We will, even in this series, see some actions from the god El, the Canaanite god who some religious scholars believe may have at some point been syncretized with the desert god Yahweh during the formation of the Torah. Now, come out. Right now, and say that while I may make mention of a few places where Canaanite and biblical narratives intersect, I'm going to keep those sorts of questions confined to a future set of episodes about the origin of the Israelites and their Old Testament stories, because these, I mean, honestly, I haven't done haven't done nearly enough research for such an important topic. Today, however, We're going to start out with a bit more of a secular tale. Though, of course, there are no truly secular tales in ancient myth, the gods play a role in everyone's life all the time in the ancient Canaanite mindset. Our hero today is a simple man, though to call him either a hero or simple is a bit misleading. Even his name is a bit debated, since it was written in the Ugaritic-Semitic language, a distant relative of modern Hebrew and Arabic, and thus the vowels are usually not written. His name is rendered K-R-T, or with those those three consonants, and in some texts you'll see him named Keret, while in others you'll see him named Kurta. The relative merits of these two renderings of the Semitic text are beyond me. But as we will see, this poor fellow has enough suffering in his life without me compounding it by spending a whole episode calling him carrot, like some kind of vegetable. And so, purely from an aesthetic standpoint, I will be calling him Kirta. But I should not just call him Kirta, because he is King Kirta of Chabr, a town probably up on the north end of Canaan, maybe a bit south of Ugarit. Now, we assume that Chabr existed, even though we have found no direct evidence of it, because we have a ton of single mentions of towns from early periods and other contexts that we can never find again. But honestly, it may as well has been a made-up town. We just don't know it isn't clear what background information we're supposed to know about Kirta for two reasons. First, we don't have the wider context for this story. What I mean by this is, think of a modern retelling of some part of the story of Jesus Christ. Now, in the West, Jesus is a pretty famous character, and if I'm telling a story about him, I don't need too much introduction, because the audience already has a general outline of who he is and what's likely to happen in a Jesus story. Now, on the other hand, think of the character Marnius Calgar, a character of middling importance in the modestly well-known Warhammer 40,000 fictional universe. Now, Mr. Calgar is far less well-known to a general audience, and even fans of Warhammer may need a gentle reminder as to exactly who he is if he shows up unexpectedly. And so we're left to wonder, how much would the general audience have known about King Kirta as they sat down to listen to his tale? Now, from the fact that it survived all this time and in a few different fragments, it's likely that he was at least somewhat well-known and people would have already heard the story in some form or another as the scribe sets out to tell the tale again, but we must always remember that maybe this tale was only popular with the scribes, the nerds of the Bronze Age. And Kirta's epic may have been more of a literary achievement reserved for certain segments of the city. Without more context, we may have to keep an open mind as to what we assume about this story and what kind of audience it's for. Now, the other reason we don't know as much about Kirta as we would like is that the first five or six lines of the tablet where it was apparently introducing him have broken off. Our tale begins with Kirta already in a pretty bad way, and the narrator is bewailing his misfortune. Now, whatever may have been Kirta's original situation, he's now completely ruined as king of Khabar. His wife has died, possibly multiple wives, and his many children have died of various causes. Some died even though they were healthy. Some died from disease. Some were taken by Rashap, a plague god. Some were taken by a follower of the sea god Yam, either indicating that they were killed by pirates or in a naval battle or perhaps by drowning, and still more were slain by swords. Remember, kids, swords don't kill people, People kill people. Kirta had had a bunch of children, maybe eight of them or so, and now they're all dead. He has no one to pass his throne on to, and with his wife dead, he cannot make any more children. Curiously, our narrator spares very little thought to the personal tragedy of a man's entire family dying before his eyes. In this way, it's a bit like the Book of Job, that really only focuses on Job's suffering, not the uh, whole of his family that's dying horribly? No, 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 no. This is the ancient Near East. The thing that we should be very worried about, and which Kirta is worried about, is his lack of heirs. And he's really upset about this. He shuts himself up in a room and just weeps for days, his tears so fat and heavy that each drop weighs a shekel. Sort of like saying you cry so hard that tears fall like hail or like quarters. But if there's any consolation at all for our very sad king having a very bad day, it's that he eventually manages to cry himself to sleep. And before we go any further, this right here, the image of a king crying himself to sleep, is really at the heart of the modern debates about what this epic really means. Some scholars see this as really moving stuff, that Kirta is a tragic figure, and his story should be read pretty much straight. The audience in this view should be crying along with Kirta, or at least mildly concerned for his well-being. Other scholars, however, think that ancient portrayals of masculinity tell us that Kirta is asking, acting in a non-masculine fashion here. We know from the rest of the story that we should not think of him as an object of scorn, but at the very least he might be an object of ridicule. Perhaps we're meant to laugh at this foolish king who cannot manage to keep his kids from dying, and who weeps big ol' girly tears alone in his room like some emo kid from the 90s. These difficulties of interpretation are made more challenging by the fact that there are pretty significant differences in the various English translations that are available. And so, you should know that while I am going to be following the story in what I think is a straight way. There are those who see irony or other meanings within this work. When enough of the uh, thumb twiddling and theorizing, Kirta has cried himself to sleep, but he gets no rest there in the land of slumber. Instead, the god El, father of man, appears in Kirta's dreams. The mighty god El asks the king why he is weeping, specifically why a man so devoted to El should ever have cause to weep. Just as an exhausted parent might ask an infant what it wants, the god El, father of man, goes through a list of questions for his very sad but very devoted subject. Does Kirta want a kingship? Does he want a bigger kingdom? Does he want silver and gold? Does he want slaves, slave girls, horses, chariots? But ultimately, Kirta just keeps saying no, like a two-year-old who's just learned the term. No, no, no. He doesn't want any of those things. All he wants is sons. And when he says this, L looks at him and he says, Is that all you're worried about? Now quit your crying and go take a bath. You smell terrible. And then, when you're all clean and ritually pure, you're going to sacrifice two lambs, a goat kid, and a pigeon. Now, these lambs are for me, the god El, and for Baal. Then Dagon gets the pigeon and the goat. Now, each of these three gods has a claim to being the king or father of the gods in different places, but in this particular story, they all seem to be approximately equal. L is doing the talking here because L is the God that Kirta is personally attached to. Remember in uh, pagan societies of the ancient Near East, you would respect all the gods, but you personally would be attached to one God. then perhaps you'd respect you'd venerate another family god and perhaps also a god of your city or nation. And in some cases, all three gods were exactly the same. In other cases, it was three different gods. Uh, But that's just how they managed the vast multiplicity of gods in the pagan world. Anyway, El says that once the sacrifices are done, it'll be time to go to war. Now, Kirta's going to need six months of bread prepared, enough to feed the entire city for a full campaign. And El means the whole city. They will march in ranks of 10,000s. Men who live completely alone will hide from the recruiters. Widows will be heavily attacked to avoid going to war themselves. Even the bedridden and the blind will be carried into this great war host, and the newlywed groom will have to leave his wife. Elle even mentions that this newly abandoned wife will find some other lover at this point— though what men are left in the city at this point isn't clear. Now, this exaggerated view of war is another point of contention among the scholars. Is the storyteller being hyperbolic to emphasize the epic scale of the army Kirte is mustering here, or is he being ironic to undercut the entire enterprise? And after all, it proves that jokes about uh, soldiers and sailors having their wives go off with other men while they're gone, well, they're about as old as humanity. Either way, the army, described as a locust swarm, marches seven days until arriving at the city of Udm. At the city, El predicts, or perhaps commands, that the army will attack all the outlying villages first, taking up all the grain and water that surrounds the city to feed Kirtas' army and starve the city of Udm. The women drawing water, the women filling jars, the men cutting wood and threshing grain will be caught almost as if unawares, going from their daily life to victim of war in a flash. Then the army should surround the city of Udum and sit for seven more days. Now, it'll be a siege, but they'll make no attack. Just sit there and encircle the city. This, says El will disconcert the king of udum so greatly that it will drive him to paranoia wondering when the attack will commence after 7 days the king of udum will send a messenger to kirta offering him anything at all if he would just go away in fact he offers many of the same riches that el himself offered to kirta and he offers these things and says to kirta take these things and leave udum the great and majestic and warns that udum is the gift of the great god el suggesting that the city is protected this is ironic because it is el himself telling kirta to go a conqueror in the dream el commands kirta to reply to this message with a message of his own rejecting the offer of the king of udum in the same terms that he rejected el's offers by which i mean he repeats the exact same words verbatim because apparently ancient audiences loved to hear the exact same thing repeated over and over again, like a child watching his favorite movie on a loop all day long. Instead of these promised riches, Kirta demands Lady Huraya, the fairest woman and firstborn daughter of the King of Udum, who is as attractive as the great goddesses Anath and Astarte, with eyes of lapis lazuli, and eyeballs of alabaster. I don't hear a lot of modern love songs praising the whiteness of a woman's eyeballs, but the idea of her having eyes of lapis lazuli, which is a shade of blue, is very interesting for a Semitic population, and is one of the sources of all manners of speculation about the ethnicities of the ancient Near East, including the always-fun speculations that they're all aliens. Anyway, Kirta in the dream tells the king of Uddam that he has been given the king's beautiful daughter by the great god El and that she will bear him children. At that point, Kirta awakens from the dream and he is super energized and ready to make his dreams come true. He washes himself and grabs some animals to sacrifice. In fact, the whole next part of the text occurs word for word, like in the dream. Kirta orders six months of provisions prepared and assembles an almost comically massive army from the city, numbering in the tens of thousands and mobilizing literally every male in the city, except for a few who were apparently left just to have affairs with all the women left behind. Like locusts, they march until the third day when suddenly we encounter something Kirta had not seen in his dream. The army, or at least Kirta, arrives at a shrine of the goddess Asherah, who is patron over Sidon and Tyre, two rather more famous Canaanite cities. Asherah is a local Canaanite deity, though one often mixed with the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar, especially in later times. She is primarily a mother goddess, with power over wives and childbirth, though her role gets complicated as she absorbs more roles and stories from outside pantheons. Anyway, since Kirta has stopped by this shrine, he goes in and prays to the goddess, hoping to rope in yet another divine patron into his endeavor. He makes a vow to the goddess, that if Kirta is able to capture Princess Huraya and take her back to his court, he will give two-thirds of Huraya's weight in silver and one-third of her weight in gold to the goddess. Then they continue on their path, and as expected, we arrive at Udum on the seventh day. They attack all the outlying settlements and then lay siege to Udum without attacking for seven days. And, as expected, this unnerves the king of Udum so much that he eventually sends out a messenger to offer all manner of wealth and reward if Kirta will just take his army and go home. Now, Kirta replies, just as in the dream, that he will forgo all wealth so long as the king delivers his beautiful daughter Huraya in marriage. Now, what happens next is a bit damaged. But overall, the king of Udom is terribly distressed by this demand, for not only did he love his daughter, but so did the people of the city. Should he give his daughter over to this marauding foreign king, the people of the city will be like calves who have lost their mother, always mooing in distress. She was a model of charity within the city, taking the hungry and thirsty by the hand, and... Presumably, she was feeding them, too, not just holding their hands. Now, Kirda's response to this plea is lost, but it seems to be something like, I don't care how sad you will be without Hariah. You will be even more sad if I level your city and sell you all into slavery. The king of Udum appears to consider this a very reasonable point, and with great wailing and gnashing of teeth, the beautiful princess Huraya is handed over to Kirta, who promptly returns home to Khabar, where a great feast is held, and the gods themselves have been invited to celebrate along with them. This is apparently a great party, expressed through an idiom translated as to enter his house he allows, to exit his house he does not allow. Though this is Meant in a positive way, like you wouldn't want to leave. Not that Kirta would hold literal gods prisoner in his banquet hall. This isn't Hotel California, it's just a Canaanite party. Anyway, there is a partial list of the guests, which includes some prince, some random dude, and Almighty Ball. Letting us know that the gods are literal guests here, walking, drinking, and partying along with the mortals. Once everyone has arrived and the party has really gotten started, the almighty Ball speaks up and calls out to El, saying, Make sure you don't leave before you bless the noble Kirta, your faithful worshiper. And with this, Prompting, El, the divine father, holds his cup of wine and calls out a toast and a blessing. El announces that this new wife Kirta, has taken will bear him uh, seven, no, eight children, including one named Yasib, who will be so highly blessed that he will have great goddesses to help raise and suckle him. Now, following the party, life returns to normal in the court of khabar over the next few years, Princess Horiah appears to spend all her time pregnant, popping out one child after another, mostly daughters, but perhaps three sons in total. The exact order isn't clear, we're missing some of these uh, passages here, but in th- it is the last-born son who is named Yassib, and in an inversion familiar from many old biblical stories, the last born is named the heir for whatever reason and is exalted before the gods. After seven years of childbirth, Kirta checks his email for the first time in a long while and realizes that there's an angry note from a certain neglected goddess that he completely forgot about. Asherah, who Kirta made a vow ahead of the siege of Udum, still hasn't gotten her gold and silver that she was promised, and is more than a bit irritated by Kirta's welching. She raises her voice, and her whole curse is lost, but it begins with the words, I will rupture your... which is not a good way for a curse to start. Though we don't know the details here, the overall sense is clear enough, and Kirta falls deathly ill and calls to his wife that she needs to go and prepare a feast and invite all the nobles of the kingdom. Meat and wine is prepared, and they invite 70 army captains and 80 petty rulers, and they all come to see the terribly ill ill Kirta, while his wife Huraya personally serves the food and drink for the feast. Now, Kirta, it seems, can't actually get out of bed to meet them, so Huraya is left in charge of announcing to the kingdom that the king needs them to weep and pray. For at this point, he's basically dead already and needs a tremendous amount of intercessory prayer. Presumably, then all the lieutenants pray for their lord, then disperse. And yet, Kirta gets no better. And so they repeat the entire feast, which would conventionally have included a great deal of pieties to the gods during the normal course of the evening. And all the men of the kingdom pray for the king again. Now depending on how you put the fragments together, there may be a third feast after this, which is as ineffectual for curing kirta as the first two, but in the final feast, the visitors start to mutter among each other. They say that, yeah, for sure, Kirta, he was a great guy, but he's reaching his sunset, and it's time for the designated heir Yasib to take the throne. There's a great deal of toasting and plotting at this final party, and the children of Kirta start to hear about this sentiment among the courtiers. And it seems that while Yasib is quite taken by the idea of being king, the other two brothers are pious and obedient to their father. Perhaps they're less enthusiastic about Yassib being the king. Still, Kirta remains ill, in a state neither dead nor healthy enough to remain king, and the matter needs to get resolved. Queen Haraya, who really appears quite content in her new family despite the circumstances that brought her to Kirta's court, Grabs her sons and has them rehearse speeches apparently intended to shame Kirta into not being sick anymore. Now, the first son, Ilha'u, walks into Kirta's sick room and begins to cry, saying to his father the following When you live, O father, we are happy. We rejoice when you are not dead. Wow, I should write that on a Father's Day card. We rejoice when you are not dead. And yet, like a dog, you're crawling to your tomb. Like a cur, you dig your own grave. How can you, Father, who are a son of the high god El, die like a mortal? Your grave will pass into the songs of women. Haven't you told the whole kingdom that you're the son of a god? Gods don't die, do they? And this monologue brings to the modern audience the very pointed question of just how much did these people actually believe their propaganda about being the literal descendants of gods? At least part of it seems to be the son mocking his father in a very rude way. But it's possible that what he's mocking is the idea of death, not his father himself himself, At the very end of it, perhaps the performer's voice is cracking a bit, "'Gods don't die, do they?' He might say it with a tear in his eye. Alternatively, perhaps the entire thing is mocking, and the son is accusing his father of undermining the very justification of kingship in Khabar. Perhaps it's with a sneer that he says, "'Gods don't die, do they?' but layering multiple possible modern interpretations of multiple possible ancient interpretation gets us a bit away from the action. For whatever was being implied here, the action itself is clearly a mourning scene, with a loyal son weeping over a dying father, and noble Kyrta responds in kind, "'Don't cry, my son. "'It is a waste, and it's no good for a man like yourself to cry.'" Instead, go get your sister, minute, She is so passionate, and it's more appropriate for a woman like her to cry. Ah, but, no, listen, son, don't go get your sister. Don't tell her this thing. She would actually cry so hard for my sake, and it would be such a waste of her life to weep for me. Instead, wait until the moon comes up. Then go and tell her to get her dancing drum and go singing through the palace, and to go make an offering for the gods. Basically, instead of crying, she should make merry, for we will have another great feast, for everyone to party instead of weeping. Now, at the end of his father's monologue, Ilha'u picks up his spear, because apparently he had carried weapons into his father's sick room for some reason, then runs over to where his sister is, over by the well. On seeing that her brother had rushed to her, fully armed, Thitmanit faints from despair, crying out that surely her father must be terribly ill. But Ilha'u replies that, oh no, 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 our father is not sick. In fact, he's having a banquet. Well, Thitmanit is hooked up by this right away, and she starts getting everything ready for a big festival, quite happy for the guest of honor, her father, to make his majestic entrance. The whole feast, part of the family is trying to keep it a secret that the king is still ill from all the reveling partiers, but the awkward questions about where Kirta is eventually break through the facade, and Fitminit Manages to visit her father and discover that, in fact, he is ill. Her first reaction, as a dutiful daughter, is to start tending to Kirta, but her second reaction is to go up to her brother and demand to know why she had been tricked and for how long Kirta had been sick. Ilhau's answer is that Kirta has been sick three months, uh, uh, no, four months, and he's approaching the sunset. Thitmanet bellows out a cry of despair and, like a cripple, holds to the door, needing support to stand up. She's cut to the bone and cries so hard that all the makeup is removed from her face. Her brother attempts to comfort her, but she is utterly inconsolable. She cries the same monologue that Ilha'u cried earlier, but there's no question of irony or hidden meaning here. Fitminit is in complete anguish that her father is dying even the god ball she insists will weep for kirta and the whole world from the mountain safon to the mountain nani will weep as well wherever those places are fitminit then tries some sort of healing ritual to try and save her father but it's no use not only does kirta remain ill but the entire land falls into a drought because of the king's suffering Maybe he really is a god after all, or at least partly divine, since he has such an impact on the physical world that he's literally required to be alive for the kingdom to remain prosperous. Things get so bad in the kingdom that even the gods start to notice, possibly because the offerings have stopped flowing quite so well. The god Dagon grabs a messenger and tells him to go out to scout the entire earth and sky and see if there's any barley or wheat growing anywhere in the whole world. The scout should look if balls rains have fallen on any fields, because the plowmen can't work if the rain doesn't fall. The scout rushes out and all the plowmen, idle because of the drought, watch him streaking through the sky. Finally, the servant of the god Dagon reports back that there is no grain in the granaries, no wine in the wineskins, no oil in any cask anywhere in the land. The servant concludes that the house of Kirta and by extension the mortal realm, is in bad shape. The gods then stand around and gossip about this matter for a bit. Finally, someone, possibly that same servant of Dagon, proposes a solution to the assembled gods and the great father L is quite impressed by the idea. Ilish, the herald of Baal's house, along with a bunch of hangers-on, are all summoned to the divine council and given instructions. Ilish is to climb to the top of a tall watchtower atop a ma- lo- tall mountain and loudly cry something. Now sadly, this is the frustrating part of old stories, the exact solution proposed to fix the drought both when it was proposed and here where it's being enacted, is too damaged to even guess at. When we pick the story back up, El is in a council with the other gods again. Perhaps they tried some solution and it didn't work, or perhaps all the extensive missing portions is just a long description of the gods coming together in a great assembly. Whatever the case, they've now figured out the root cause of the great drought. Kirta's illness is causing it. Now, for some reason, either no one asks Asherah to remove her curse, or perhaps she can't remove it once she casts it, or maybe she's just pouting and won't, won't do it. We don't hear anything at all from the offended goddess at this point, at least not in the parts that are still readable. Instead, El is sitting in his council and asking the gods over and over again, who's able to heal diseases? The assembled gods all just kind of sit there and avoid eye contact, and neither answers nor volunteers are forthcoming. Finally, El asks seven times who can fix this before giving up, and he tells the other gods, his sons, to just sit down. Don't worry about things. El will fix it himself, since the rest of them are useless. And so he grabs a handful of dirt from the ground, pulls some clay out of it, fashions the clay into the shape of a goddess, then does some holy blessings on the clay, announcing that she is now Shakatat, the remover of illnesses. Shatakat takes the form of a kite, the hunting bird, not the toy, and like a majestic soaring bird, she swoops over town and village, healing everything in her path. Finally, she flies into the house of Kirta and arrives at his sick bed. She cries out, Death be shattered! Shattakat is triumphant! And then she waves a magic wand, and this unbinds the illness that was tied around Kirta's head. She then wipes the sweat from his head, and noble Kirta immediately sits up, and in a voice full of health and command, he calls out to his wife that, what else? She should immediately go prepare him a lamb so that he can have a big heavy meal. Now, after this, it's only one or two days before he's fully restored to health and sitting proudly in his throne. However, throughout this long illness, Yasib, the heir to the throne, has been patiently and politely waiting for his chance to inherit. The courtiers have been supporting his ambitions, and there has been a wicked spirit in his heart whispering that he should go and take the throne immediately. He's been waiting for months to allow matters to take their natural course, but when young Yasib sees his father on the throne once again, his immediate thought is that his father is only pretending to be well. He believes that Kirt is being stubborn and remaining alive only to keep Yasib from the crown, and he gets exceedingly upset. His speech, though, is remarkably sensible, and a coherent one, and deserves to be read in full. Here now, O noble Kirta, hearken, alert your ear. In times of attack, you flee and lie low in the mountains. You've let your hand fall to vice. You do not pursue the cases of widows, and do not support the claims of the most wretched citizens. You do not expel the oppressors of the poor, and you do not feed the orphans and widows that surround you. Your sick bed has become your only lover, and your illness your only friend. Step down from your rule. I will be king, and I will sit on the throne. Noble Kirta answers by straight up swearing at him. Like, for real, if this was 3,000 years ago, the things Kirta says would need to be bleeped out to keep this a family-friendly podcast. And in a sense, we can hardly blame him. Kirta has been ill for months, and the very first thing he gets from his chosen son is not, Hey, I'm glad you're alive, but more of, Hey, why aren't you dead yet? Noble Kirta bursts out shouting, May Horon crack your skull, my son. May Horon crack your head. A starty named with ball, your skull. May you fall at the peak of your years. May you be cut down while you still clench your fists. Now this is straight up old style cursing. Horon is a god, but not the sort of god anyone actually worships, at least not in a Canaanite context that we're aware of. Rather, he is the divine master of a number of plagues and calamities, and rules over an army of demons. In a modern context, this is like telling his son to go to hell, or wishing that Satan would attack him. Astarte named with Baal, meanwhile, is more of what we would call a third commandment violation, swearing by taking a holy name in vain. You can really hear it in the original Ugaritic reading of the line, which in the old language would have sounded like, shem Shembaal, Kokotic, which carries a bit more vigor than the English version. But even though Kirta is cursing his son for raising the question of his fitness to rule and thus announcing himself to be in rebellion against his king and father, the points that Yassib is raising are valid ones. The illness that Kirta was clinging to seems not to be his only issue as a ruler. He appears to also have neglected his sacred kingly duty towards justice and protecting the weakest citizens of the city. Like later codes of noble ethics like chivalry and bushido, these ideas were not always practiced by the ruling class, but they were always at least imagined to be important. And honestly, we've seen in this very story that Kirta may look like a pretty bad king in Yasib's eyes. He spent his kingdom's wealth on what? On ruinously massive wars that benefited the city? Not at all, gaining nothing but a wife for the king. And then we've seen multiple feasts, and not much else. Plus, recall that the whole reason Kirta got sick was that he had neglected a sacred oath made to the goddess Asherah. Yesib is actually right, and here in the final lines of the epic, it is Kirta who is restored to health despite this, and is able to crush his son's rebellion. Now the tale ends here, somewhat abruptly, but even though it's sort of meandered around a lot, the narrative arc for Kirta is pretty clear. In the beginning, Kirta wants a son and heir. In the end, he finds himself cursing his son and heir because that son is rebelling by pointing out that Kirta's not actually a very good king. Is that a tragedy or a comedy? Whatever it is, it is proof that even through the barrier of millennia, the people of ancient Canaan were thinking about their kings and leaders in complex and subtle ways. Of all the ancient tales, Kirta would probably make the best modern movie in terms of scope and context, even if the lack of clear genre and many ancient tropes might baffle modern audiences. Anyway, Kirta's Also, of some note, because we actually have the end of the last tablet, with a little postscript telling us that this tablet was written by the scribe Ilimilku under the direction of one of the Ugarit kings, Nikmadu. Now that aside, I hope you've enjoyed our first look at Canaanite myths from Ugarit, because this is the plan for the next few episodes. So join us next time to meet another man who wants children and gets himself in trouble with the gods because of it. The tale of Akhat and Daniel, however, goes in very different directions than Kirtas' story did. Thank you for listening.